you would please open your Bibles to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. If you're using one of the ones we've offered you in the seats, it's page 811, I believe. We are moving into a new sermon series that we've entitled One Church Firmly Rooted. And we're spending the next uh, several weeks, the next five weeks, talking about um, our church in light of the fact that we're beginning to walk as um, a church here and a church downtown, and we're walking together uh, through the Christian life. And so uh, in doing that, uh, from a leadership perspective, we've certainly had to figure out how does that look and work, uh, but it, it's important for us to appreciate it at every level. And so over the next five weeks, we'll be talking about what does it, what is it, what does it look like that we are not simply um, a church in Hocassen, but that we uh, give... Um, deference and care in many ways to another community downtown, and we work together very closely in in so many things. So that's what we're going to be talking about for the next five weeks. This morning, I'd I'd like us to start by focusing on what does, uh, how do we derive the local church? What does a church look like? Before we talk about anything grand, what does a church look like? And in the Bible... Um, the church is often referred to as a body, a body of Christ. That's the language. Uh, in fact, that language is used in the letter uh, of Paul to the Ephesians. And individual Christians in the Bible are referred to as members of that body. And members like organs, like a foot or an eye or a hand or an ear. That's how. They didn't really have a sense of cellular structure or anything like that. They didn't have DNA. They just broke it down to... A body of Christ is made of different functioning members that work together for the glory of God. That, that, that's how a church was. It would be talked about as a building. Christians were spoke of, spoken of as uh, building blocks for a building. That's another one that you'll see this morning. And I think uh, we're always, it feels like in our house we are always doing demolition. There is always a sledgehammer in our house, um, which I pray upon you that you arrive to a place where there's no sledgehammer in the house. But we, we're in a place right now, we're demoing the attic and um, going to try to make a playroom. And if you've ever done like renovative work to build out something, of the work is on the other side of the drywall, the side that nobody ever gets to see. I mean, if you tear something all the way out to the studs, and all it is is studs, well, then, you know, you do the wiring and the the plumbing and the insulation, and and all of that gets done, and then you slap drywall on it, you paint it, and you put trim work on it, and people go, oh, what a nice room, and there's part of you who goes, you don't even know the half of it. Like, do you know what's going on behind that wall? Do you know how difficult it was to fish that wire, that one light, was a miracle. Just to get that one light was a miracle. But what ends up happening is, is the individual pieces of the structure begin just to fade to the background as the, the room itself just becomes what's appreciated. Like in this room here, if you think that this is the building of the Lord, each one of these cinder blocks, each one of these blocks is like a Christian. That's what Paul says in this letter is we're each being built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets 
the cornerstone of which is Christ, but we're being built up so that we might be a temple for the Lord's residence, is the notion. And uh, the stones just kind of fade to the background as we begin to understand what the church is. And so that's what I'd like to do this morning. This morning, we're going to kind of sweep through the letter to the Ephesians where we're going to read the letter like it was a letter, not so much like three verses at a time, but kind of read some sections and kind of derive what does it mean, what is a local church uh, in 35 minutes. We'll try to figure this out, and, and then we'll take it the following weeks to figure out how it fits in this grove of churches that we're going to become. So if you look in Ephesians 2, uh, is when he begins to, well, actually, we'll read two verses out of Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, he does kind of a welcome and a blessing, and then he anchors the core idea that has to be present if there's going to be any church at all, and that anchor idea is Christ. And so if you see uh, chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, this summarizes essentially what, the Lord, what Paul is saying in his letter earlier. He says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And this idea is going to come up again and again. It's just going to come around and around and around again in this letter of the fact that the church is... is the body of Christ is beneath the headship of Christ and that the power of Christ is resident in the church. That's, that's going to be a continual theme that's showing up is, is the power of Christ in, in this reading. But in the second chapter, he begins by um, deriving the church from the individual. Let me, let me just read 10 verses for you and you'll, and you'll see what I mean. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, Paul here is starting with the individual. He's writing a book, he's writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. But he's starting, as we read this, it should land, it should resonate in you as, as individually true. 
you should be able to, if you're, if you're in Christ, you should say, yeah, that's about right. That's how it was with me. At one point, I was not a believer, and now I am a believer. At one point, I was rather, I served my own, my own spirit, my own nature. I ran after my own things. I did things that were not godly because I was beneath what Paul calls the prince of this air, this, the prince of this world, the, the, the Satan, the evil, I, that, that was what fed me at one point in my life. But now I've turned to Christ, and he has saved me. Through the mercy of God and the work of Christ, I have been saved. That faith is all I have, but it's, otherwise it's God's mercy. This is, Paul is beginning by saying, listen, it starts at the individual. In other words, we could have, this church would be here next Sunday, but if none of us showed up, it would not be church. The sign will be out there. The sign will call this church. But it wouldn't be church if there's no... There are hollow churches that are churches as a building but not as a body. Because it starts with the individual. He's, he's saying, you need to remember you were converted into Christ. God called through his mercy and you turned. And that's how it started. And everyone here who claims Christ has the same start. We, none of us here, started in Christ. We were outside of Christ. We have turned and called out his name and become a follower. And that's how he starts. But listen to where he goes from there. Verse 11, I'll read 11 to at least 18. Therefore, Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who themselves, the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of, covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's, he, at first he said to the individual, remember, you were once not reconciled to the Lord. You were once not in Christ, and then through the work of Christ and through faith, you've come. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That because he died, this is what was, you, was told five times this morning. right? Because of Christ's sacrifice for us, we might be reconciled to the Lord through his grace and mercy. And he starts that way, but then he begins to say, and remember to the church of Ephesus, which is mostly Greek, Gentile is a word for non-Jew. So he's writing to a largely non-Jewish community. He's saying, and remember, you collectively were once out of the promise. There was no hope. He's saying at one point, you had no way of being in. You were not of the right blood. You were not circumcised. You were cut out of the promises. But he's saying, but Christ Jesus has obliterated that too and brought you in. Listen to as he continues. For he himself is our peace, it says in 14, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, 
We both have access to the Father by one spirit. So what he's saying is he starts off, well, he starts off saying, hey, Jesus is the head over everything. Everything is beneath the feet of Christ. And then he says, and every one of you who claim Christ do so through the mercy of God. And then he says, and oh, by the way, he says, not only has God reconciled you to the Father, but God has reconciled you to one another in the scriptures. There used to be a dividing wall of hostility that was between the Jew and the Gentile, but the Lord has come down and he's done away with that so that not only do we have peace with God, but we have peace with our brother. That's what's happening here. And if you look, he started with the individual, but now he's talking about the community. He's saying at one point you were out and now you're in. And he even begins to talk about how he called those who were far off and brought them in. And he called those who were near and brought them in and placed them in the same church. He says in 18, for through him we both have access to the Father by what? One spirit. There's this notion in the faith that once we're, once we're made right with the Lord, then the divisions and the differences that stand out in the fellowship begin to get smaller and smaller and smaller in light of the incomparable riches of our salvation. That's what, that's what true unity in the church is. Everybody always wants unity. We want, we want cheap unity. We want to sing the same song on Thanksgiving Day. True unity in the church is when the churches are so infatuated with the work of God that the differences of the small differences fade in the background. That we, in other words, Christ's work for us is the dominant feature of our life. And as that dominates... Everything else seems to fade. And he goes on here in 19. Now listen to the size of the image. Remember, just earlier he was talking about the individual. Remember, you were once separated from God. Now listen to where he is. Consequently, 19, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we began talking about the individual. And we end where the individual is nothing more than a stone in the walls of the church of God. There's this, there's this idea here that your Christian life is not full if you're not connected in a community of God. The assumption, I mean, he's writing to the church. He's saying, remember how you were once, once away? Now I made you right with me, and then I made you right with your brother, and now the two of you together, or the groups of you together, are the stones upon which the house of God is being built. He starts at the individual, and he ends at the church. And there's this idea that this is, this is certainly a local reality, right? There's certainly in a sense that the three to 400 of us that come on Sundays are these stones that are upon which we build the house of God. That's the idea. But this is also a bigger idea. So it's not simply happening here. It's happening, God's movement, God's church is bigger than this. It's, this is the local church, but we, I think, recognize that there is a bigger church than the local church. There's a global church. Like James shared when we sing holy, 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 there, are, there is a church 
right now that's finishing up its worship because it's one time zone before, and there's a church that's starting its worship because it's one time zone after. There's a, there's a church in every time zone that's worshiping the Lord throughout this whole day. And so from sunup to sundown, people are singing all Sunday to Jesus. Everywhere you go, there's some church that's worshiping. That's, that's the desire that the Lord would be worshiped around the whole globe all through the day. It's a big church. So you have the local church, but you have the big church. You have, you have the, inv- the visible church, this structure and, and these people that we can see, but then you have this idea that there is an invisible church. It's a, it's a bigger idea that, that kind of reaches across the walls. In the scriptures, Jesus says to Peter, on, on this rock I shall build my church. He, he can't have been speaking of the local church of Jerusalem. I mean, it doesn't end there. I'm going to build my church. The Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That idea is is take what is true in this church and make it true everywhere. In Acts 1.8, right? And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and unto Samaria and the ends of the earth. It's this idea that what's true in this church, this one spirit that's true in this church is true Everywhere, there's this idea that there is, a, there is a large church of Jesus Christ in which we fit. By the third chapter, Paul is, this is where he is by the third chapter. Look at the 14th verse. He gets to preaching by this point. And He's discussing the size and scale of the church. I mean, so he, remember, he starts at the individual, and then, he's, then he works with the reconciliation of people to another, and then it's citizenship, and then it's a building and a house of God built. And by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 14, just I want you to listen to the scale of the family of God. Are you ready? For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. By this point, Paul is saying the church defies space in heaven and on earth, the whole family of God. And he continues, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is and to know his love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Now listen, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So by the time you get to the third chapter, the boundaries of the church defy space and time. He prays for the whole family of God, whether in heaven or on earth. He prays that we, with, with the prayers of the saints, and by saints, he's not talking like St. Agnes, he's talking a Christian is a saint, okay? So he's saying to you, together with all the believers, all the followers of God would speak with one spirit. And he says, and that that would happen across all generations. So this is the image. If, if the Christian is a member of the body, 
right? If the church is the body and a Christian is the member, so we're a building block of the body, where, uh, which, by the way, is not significant by itself. There's not a, a use, a lot of use for a bucket of noses or just a note. That's gross. <laughs> What's not gross? There's not a lot of use in just a nose. I'll just say it that way, right? We are valuable as believers to the degree that we belong to the body. There is a humbling, I don't want to say anonymity, but smallness about you and the gospel. God has saved you through his great mercy to do his work. And what we see is, is you're a small part of the body and that this body is part of a family and this family is kind of part of a nation. That's how you would understand the big church. In another way, we would say that, that you're a building block in a house or a building and that this building, if in, in our kind of, the way we're talking about it with downtown and future church plants, that our building, that we might be part of a neighborhood of buildings which are part of a city, a city of God. Or you might understand that if we are parts of a tree, right, that if we were several trees together, we'd be a grove. That's what we've been talking about. We'll be talking about these weeks. But in that grove is part of a forest, that there's a huge forest of churches that are worshiping God in this earth, all across the earth. And there are different species and breeds and degrees of health and all sorts of things. But there's a forest of churches that are worshiping the Lord. That's, that's the pro- progression that Paul has. He starts with Christ, and he says the individual, the community, family, and then this nation that expands space and time. So it's here that I'm going to ask the question, if the big church is the church, and the local church is the church, and the Christian is reconciled to the Lord, who's responsible for the Christian life? Where does that have to be lived out? I mean, we could say, well, everywhere, which I'm sure that's true-ish, but it's not helpful. If you stick with the analogy for a second, if, the, if all the churches on the earth are the forest, I would say, where, what is alive? What's living? Where is the life to be found? Because we could look at the forest of churches and we could say, well, the the forest is alive. But you really would say, well, the forest isn't really alive. that tree exists independent of that tree. The the forest has a habitat, an environment, certainly with the grove. This idea of us, uh, two churches, three churches, four churches working together. We're trying to create a healthy habitat for church. We could say, that's true, we're trying to grow together. But the habitat is not life. There's life in the forest, but the forest isn't alive. The tree is alive. If we're going to look for life, we'd say the tree is alive. The same in a family or a a people, right? A nation or a family. You'd say, well, there's life in the family, but it's the person that's alive. There's a sense that no matter how big God defines his church, that the local church has to be a fully vibrant and living church. Some of you, maybe you're thinking, well, who, what does this matter? It, it, I, I promise you it matters because we're about to partner with another church on the walk through life to 
see God's kingdom unfold. And this tendency, I bet you, it surfaces in marriage all the time. So I bet you it'll surface in any relationship, this tendency. The tendency of saying, well, they have that and we'll get that. Like the 50-50 idea. You do 50% and I'll do 50%. And together, this cumulative percentage thing, which doesn't work in marriage at all. And we know that, but we still try to do it. We're always hedging back our percentage and seeing how much more they'll give. That, that's the idea that we do, right? So in marriage, you say, well, I'll bring 50 and, and she'll bring 50 and together we'll have 100. And the Lord says, together you'll have nothing. And you'll always be waiting for the other person to give 100. The, the image of, a, of that kind of relationship, of a covenant relationship is the husband puts 100 into the marriage and the wife puts 100% in the marriage and then the Lord works at reconciling the boundary of hostility that is between them. That we build brick by brick. That's what's going on. And the same is true with local churches that are partnering. We can't simply say, well, the, our, the collectively we're the church. And expect that the fullness of God will be appreciated then. I think the Lord would say, no, I'm holding each body of Christ responsible for the life that is in it. So I'll say it in very plain terms. We cannot say... Well, this church tithes, and that church loves the poor. We can't say, well, this church teaches the Bible and heads towards maturity, and that church reaches out. That's the reaching out campus. That's the reaching out love the poor campus. We're the tithe campus and know the Bible answer campus. The Lord would say, well, you're half, you're half a church. The Lord would say, a tree grows, matures, and spreads. That, that a body of Christ grows, doesn't, he doesn't want us to have stunted growth or to walk with a limp. That he would say, you don't want an atrophied view, but the whole, the whole, our body should do all of what the word says at some appropriate measure. As should their campus. Right now, downtown, this same message is being preached by Jeff to their congregation. Of No matter how much health we benefit from the habitat of a grove of churches together, the life is in the tree. And I'll show you here. Look at the fourth chapter. So if, if you were just reading through Paul's letter, you would get to the end of the third, and it would, it would end on a high, resounding note. It would have fireworks. I mean, just listen. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power and work that is within us. I mean, that is just, that's big language. It's, it's the high language of the Bible. It is kind of the benediction. It's, it's, you can imagine as you're reading, kind of, that is a climax in, in the letter to the Ephesians. And then when you get to the fourth chapter, you just imagine that, that who's ever reading it would just have to take a breath, kind of one of those <sighs> breaths. Now listen to the language. Okay, you tell me the scale of language that Paul's talking about now. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Do you hear? He, it's like he's back to the local church again. 
There's this starts with the individual, becomes communities that come together. Next thing you know, it's, it's the saints in heaven and on earth. It's the church through all generations. It's this huge idea. And then he says, now listen, listen, listen. Make every effort to keep the peace of the spirit through humility and gentleness. And he gives us this, this recipe, these tenets of a church. Look at verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In this thing we're going to do, as we planted the church downtown, and Lord willing, as we continue to plant churches and this tree now is in partnership with this tree and begins to have that tree and then there's that tree and maybe there's a grove and a grove of trees that are kind of benefiting locally that in all of this, I believe the Lord wants us to know that this tree has to be a vibrant church by itself. And that if this tree is waiting for that tree to be holy, that tree will be holy and this tree will be unholy. It's... And this is the call. This is what he calls every fellowship. I believe every church. This is his word to Ephesus as it would be the word here to Hokesson. There's one body and one spirit. This idea that in, in this fellowship, we're not divided. This is not a divided fellowship. It is not, you know, and I, I celebrate by the, by the fact, the fact that we don't have a traditional service and a contemporary service. Because as that has panned out in so many churches, it has become two churches under one roof. That's just what happens. One body. That's the worries. We are one body. Which means we're never going fast enough for some of you and we're never going slow enough for some of you because we're one. Which means we're never playing anybody's favorite playlist on Sunday because we're one. We're one. To the praise and glory of the Father, we're one. We're one body. We're one spirit. It means God's spirit is not divided. I mean, God's spirit is not saying something here that he's not saying something here. The Lord himself is not bringing a competitive spirit into the room that has to vie for victory. The Lord gives one voice to his church. That's what he's saying. There's one one Lord, one faith, one baptism. They come, boom, boom, boom. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. In other words, this church, and, and in a church, I would say, I think these are tenets of a church, in a church we preach one Lord. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. This is not a fellowship of people who are excited about the idea of a deity. These are a group of people who gather around the salvation which comes through Jesus Christ alone. There's one Lord. There's one faith. We're not saved. Somebody here is not saved by doing something good and somebody here is not saved by doing something else. You're not saved by where you came from or where you're going. We're saved by faith in that one Lord. It's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. We have one common confession. All five of them you heard this morning are essentially the same. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we have one God. The fellowship of believers, a local church is called to be united beneath the lordship of Christ and in the same spirit. The role of our church, no matter how many churches we happen to walk along with, 
I mean, it's good and it's glorious that we can resonate with the larger body of Christ. But no matter how large we envision the work of God happening, it has to happen at this level. I pray that as we grow and take a step forward, that that would be the case. In the next weeks, we'll be talking about what does it mean, the grove. Let's talk about the habitat of the grove. But this morning, we just wanted to start with, well, what does it mean to be a church? Thank you, and amen. Will you pray with me, please?